At the uh, Keswick Convention in July this year, as I flicked through the convention handbook, I was interested to read uh, this statistic. One survey suggests 50% of Christian men, 50% of Christian men have used pornography. 50%. I've got to say I wasn't uh, entirely surprised by the statistic because in pastoral ministry, and especially in the last 10 years, Time and again, I've met with Christian guys who are struggling with pornography. And I'm talking about keen Christian men with a real Christian testimony who are fully involved in the church. These are the sorts of men who've told me that they are habitually looking at porn. I assume that for every one of these men who've the courage to come and talk to me, because that's not an easy thing to do, there must be more in the congregation who don't talk to me about it. There's no doubt in my mind that the internet has exacerbated the problem. And it is a problem, and especially when we look at the words of the Lord Jesus. Look again at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And look, this is not just a problem for seedy men spilling their lust in front of a computer screen. If this is how Jesus wants us to live in the sexual arena, then boy, do we have a problem on our hands. I was speaking to a Christian worker earlier this week, uh, telling him that I was preaching on this. He's a man who has spent many years working amongst Christian students. As I told him I was preaching on this passage, he told me of a situation in a Christian organisation that had led him to believe that 50% of Christian students who are dating are sexually active with their partners. Now, if you think that's a bit extreme, uh, I was handed this book today. Uh, It's called Pure, and uh, I'll quote directly from it. It says this, quote, Sit down for a moment. 40% of Christian students have experienced genital intercourse, oral sex, or mutual masturbation. End of quote. Now, do you see the problem? Jesus speaks plainly about not even looking lustfully at a woman and a considerable proportion of Christian men and Christian students in Britain are not even coming close to living this out. It seems that in the past decade or two there have been considerable slippage in acceptable sexual standards in the church in Britain. And it should worry us with these words of Jesus before us. Look how seriously he takes this issue. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus doesn't mince his words here. Jesus is not playing around with us on this issue. If lustful thoughts are a serious issue to be cut out of our lives, then you can be sure pornography and being sexually active with your boyfriend or girlfriend most certainly are as well. And so tonight I want to ask us to take Jesus seriously and to really do business with God this evening. Can we do that? I'm going to pray that we would right now, so let's pray together.
Our Father, we recognise that as we come to your word this evening already, uh, we know that we are coming to a part of the Bible that is as relevant as ever. Uh, We know that we are coming uh, to engage with something that um, cuts right to the heart of a serious problem, not just in our society, but among us here in the church, in this church. And we ask you, Heavenly Father, powerfully, by your Spirit, with deep conviction, to bring your word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now look, sexual purity of this standard is sure to challenge us. But unless we put this into its biblical context, we are going to leave here with all sorts of problems, weighed down by guilt. That is not the point tonight. We will go away, if we don't get this right, feeling that this standard is just too high to achieve. That is not the point tonight. If we're not careful, we will go away feeling discouraged rather than encouraged to live this way. If we're not careful, we will simply, at the end of tonight, throw in the towel and decide no longer to follow Jesus because it's just too hard. You see, if this is the standard in order to be right with God, then you and I don't have a hope. You see, that is how many people read these words. Um, When I lived in London, I met a guy at the tennis club and um, it was one of those nights we used to go down on, I think, a Wednesday night when I was in in London and it was called club night and you'd kind of just get paired, paired up with other guys and girls and you'd play a game of doubles or singles or whoever was down there. I met this guy there, I'd never met him before. Had a game of tennis, uh, had a a drink with him afterwards. He asked what I did for a living. I told him I was a vicar. He told me he was a Jew. I asked him what it meant to him to be Jewish. He said, well, it's all the same, really. It's just the same as you, as long as we're all trying to live a good life. He said, it's the Sermon on the Mount. I was surprised he even knew what the Sermon on the Mount was. He was a Jew. It's the Sermon on the Mount, he said. You've just got to live a good life. That is the popular misconception about Jesus' teaching when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. Try and live a good life. Try and be a good person to get to heaven. But if that's it, then looking at the words we have before us, I would guess most, if not all, men here are completely stuffed. I can only speak as a man tonight. I don't know what goes on in women's heads as far as uh, this issue is concerned. So most of my application are going to be to men. Women, will you try and do the translation for you? We don't live this, do we, men? What does it say? Don't even look lustfully at a woman. But as we saw last week, and this is why last week was so important, this is not trying to live up to a really high standard in order to get right with God. If that was it, let's all go home and forget it. Look back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and we'll see a biblical context and we need to put this in place before we look at the details uh, so that we don't get the wrong end of the stick. Look at chapter 5 verse 1, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. It's very important to spot the detail in these verses. Here is Jesus, the Lord, up a mountain, giving the law to his followers, to his disciples. Very important. 
And why is it so important? Well, well, flip back with me to Exodus chapter 19. Keep your finger in Matthew 5 because we're going to go back there. But just come back with me to Exodus chapter 19, page 77, the first of the two readings that Michelle read for us. Exodus chapter 19, page 77. And remember what we've just seen at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5? We saw Jesus the Lord up a mountain giving the law to those who follow him. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 20. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai. Here is the Lord up a mountain. And in chapter 20, we see the Lord giving the law to who? Those who follow him. The Lord up the mountain giving the law. And here is the crucial point. Look very carefully who he's giving the law to. Chapter 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There's no need to turn over, but the next bit in chapter 20 are the Ten Commandments. Now if you remember nothing else this evening, will you remember this? The Ten Commandments were given to those who had already been brought out of slavery. That's what it says in verse 2. The Ten Commandments are given to those who are already saved. The Ten Commandments were never given as a way to be saved. Do you see the point? I do not, and the Bible has never taught this, I do not get right with God by living the Ten Commandments. But rather, having been saved, having been brought out of slavery, the commandments are the way I should live as God's saved people. The difference is enormous. But most people are so confused over this, they are not helped by church furniture either and church architecture. Go to many church buildings up and down this land and uh, when you look at the communion table, either side of the communion table are the Ten Commandments, five on one side, five on the other. Have you seen that sort of thing in churches? And that is fine, except they never begin with Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. So they never tell you that, no, these these are not the way you get saved, but the way that people should live as the saved people of God. And so people think as they walk up to the communion table, this is what I've got to do in order to get right with God. Do you see? Hopeless. Now you see, as we return to Matthew chapter 5, if you and I can only come to God if we keep the law, then we are completely stuffed, if I can put it that way. Indeed, if I may be autobiographical for a moment, it was that realisation, the realisation that I could not keep God's standards, that led me to become a Christian. I tried to live a good life. I still remember I was just about to move out of my, own ho- out of my, my parents' home. I was 20. I was about to buy my own flat. I was in the process of buying it. And my mum said to me one day, you treat this house like a hotel. And I thought, yes, I do, actually. She must have said it a hundred times before. This time it hit me. It came like a bolt out of the blue. Yes, I do. I'm going to try and live a good life. Until I move out of this, this, this home, I'm going to try and live like a good son. And I couldn't do it. I could not do it. Couldn't even keep my own standards, let alone God's. And that was when I began to realise that I deserved God's punishment. Because I didn't live up to his standards. I deserved hell. Because every day I rebelled against him, never keeping his law. But then I heard the wonderful news that Jesus died for me on a cross. That his death took all my guilt and shame. That in repentance and faith I could turn to Jesus and have a fresh start. 
And let me tell you, that was such a relief. I was forgiven. I had a fresh start with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And once I realised that, that I'd been saved from hell by Jesus' death on the cross, then I wanted to live for him. Amazed by grace, I wanted to aim high. What can I do for you, Lord? You died for me. What can I do for you? You see, my living a good life doesn't get me to heaven. Jesus gets me to heaven. But once I've realised that, I will want to live for him. That's how the Christian views the law. God's law shows me my sin, it makes me run to Jesus and when I then have been forgiven for all the failure, I want to live for Jesus and keep God's law. The Christian then doesn't keep the law out of guilt but out of gratitude. You've done all this for me, Lord, what can I do for you? Now that is the crucial point as we turn to Matthew chapter 5. Listen, as we look at Jesus' words tonight, if you walk away continuing to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, continuing to look at porn, continuing to look lustfully, and you have no desire to change, then it has to be questioned whether you are really saved. Not because these things save you, but because as a saved person you will want to live high for God. That's the biblical context of the Sermon on the Mount. So how should we live when it comes to the seventh commandment? Well, point one on the handout, do not commit adultery, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Jesus is quoting the Pharisees, who were in turn quoting the law, and quoting it quite correctly, I might add. Their teaching was right, they were orthodox. They knew the commandments and, make no mistake, they were very hot on teaching them and living them. See, the Pharisee would never fall foul of the snooping photographer. There was nothing to see. There really wasn't. No chance to catch him out. No chance, if I can put it this way, of the Pharisee being caught with his trousers down. just wouldn't happen. When they taught, do not commit adultery, they lived it. No hypocrisy at one level here. They were a moral bunch, squeaky clean. You wouldn't find them in the news of the world, having abused choir boys or having an affair with a member of the congregation. They just wouldn't do that. They were a moral bunch. And they believed that they had kept the law, this law. They hadn't committed adultery. They hadn't slept with someone who wasn't their spouse. But just as we saw last week, Jesus says a real disciple goes deeper. You see, the problem with the Pharisees was they were thinking that was how you get right with God rather than realising that they had been made right with God through his action and that then they ought to aim as high as they can. Not looking to do the bare minimum, not seeing what you can get away with, not merely keeping the letter of the law, but longing to live the spirit of the law. And so Jesus says, secondly, after do not commit adultery, secondly, he says, do not commit adultery in your heart. You see, go deeper, aim high. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, of course, we must keep on teaching do not commit adultery, but Jesus' point is this. Just because we're not jumping into bed with anybody who isn't our spouse doesn't mean we've got a clean bill of health on this one. 
We may have kept the letter of the law, but God's law goes deeper than a surface reading. Now at this point, because we're all like the Pharisees, our temptation will be to try and wiggle our way out of this. Have you noticed that? Already some of you will be thinking, this is ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with looking at a woman. Let me say, no, of course there isn't. Don't misrepresent Jesus. Don't be a Pharisee. He's not speaking about looking at a woman or even admiring her. So I can comment when I'm with my wife Caroline on how attractive another woman is without lusting after that other woman. I can do that. Look, just because we find this passage challenging, let's not look for loopholes. We know the difference between looking and lusting, don't we? It's the second look, isn't it? It's what goes on in the mind afterwards. Lusting, it's when we've seen and then dwelt. It's the desire to be more than just good friends. It's the the mental striptease, the imagined sex. That's what it is. And let's not try and justify ourselves by using clever words. Can I put it this way? Let's not do a Bill Clinton. Do you remember him? Remember the whole Monica Lewinsky affair? When Bill Clinton was President of the United States, he was accused of having an affair with one of the White House staff. He denied it, saying, this is the quote, I did not have sex with that woman. More evidence came out, came to light, and it turned out that Monica Lewinsky had committed fellatio with him, which is oral sex. And so President Clinton was accused not only of inappropriate sexual act, but also now of lying. Do you remember the story? And while he admitted to having an improper relationship with Monica Lewinsky, because there was no way he could deny it, he denied that he lied because he didn't actually have sexual intercourse with her. I did not have sex with that woman. That's just playing with words, isn't it? But I imagine there are a number of people here today who are doing a Bill Clinton, playing with words, if not now, at other times in their lives. You're telling yourself that you're not actually having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Because there's no penetration. When in fact you're all touching each other's genitals and leaving each other in a place of extreme arousal. But I'm not actually having sex. That's all right then. And when it comes to these words, you'll say, I'm not lusting, I love my girlfriend. It's not lust, I love her. Let's not play games with words here. That is to be a Pharisee. We know what Jesus is saying. Don't allow yourself to be sort of manipulated by the evil one that sort of gives you a way out. Aim high. Jesus has died for you. You've been saved from hell. Aim high for him. We know what Jesus is saying. He's saying that even lusting after a woman is breaking the commandment not to commit adultery. So any other type of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage is breaking the seventh commandment. Is that what he's saying? Let me spell it out so there can be no excuse. So that when we're tempted, we know what we should and shouldn't be doing. Apart from your spouse, your legally married husband or wife of the opposite sex, apart from your spouse, any sexual activity, even in your mind, breaks this commandment. That's what Jesus is saying. And so as Jesus makes us look deep into our hearts, I doubt there's anyone here who gets a clean bill of health. Well, there may be one or two, but there's certainly no smugness from the preacher this evening. Jesus has caught us with the trousers of our heart around our ankles. We've been rumbled. We're adulterers in our heart. That must be taken seriously. 
Jesus says, do not commit adultery in your heart. And here's why, third point, heart adultery has fatal consequences. Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose your one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Same thing in verse 30. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The danger of heart adultery is hell, eventually. And Jesus knows that the next world is so much more important than this one. Yes, to follow Jesus' teaching here is going to be costly, but to fail to listen could cost you everything. Everything. For eternity. I feel it passionately tonight because over the years I've seen too many people wreck their Christian lives because of sex. I can think of a number of people, I have been thinking of these people while I've been preparing this week, a number of people who've got tangled in sexual relationships that they cannot break free from. Christian girls going out with unbelievers who then come to me and say, I know I shouldn't marry him but I love him. Why are they so attached? Because they've got sexually involved with each other. And then these Christian girls have ended up marrying an unbeliever because they couldn't break free sexually. And their Christian life is never what it could be. Never as good as it could have been. Or Christians being sexually active with each other. Two Christians end up marrying one another they really shouldn't have married. They married badly because they've, had they never been intimate, they'd have realised their relationship had little going for it, really. It was just based on sex. Once you've done that, it's very difficult to pull apart. I've seen Christian people lose their faith because of sex. I think of guys and girls who've, who've had affairs. I told a, girl, a guy from this congregation last year that if he didn't stop his affair... I thought he'd end up up, giving up the Christian life. I asked him if the woman he was sleeping with was worth spending eternity in hell for because, you see, he wasn't listening to anything else. That was the sort of way I had to speak to him. Is she worth hell for? He didn't stop the affair and he's given up the Christian life. I hope he comes back to the Lord, but at the moment he's heading for hell. Is that worth it? The arms of a woman... Sex is so very powerful, it is very hard to break free once you're enmeshed in it. And it is remarkable how people will give up eternity for sex. That is the shortest term thinking I've ever come across. Of course, go to the cinema and watch the TV and it will rarely be presented like that. Largely, affairs are presented exciting and fulfilling. Hollywood seldom shows what happens in real life. Let me tell you what happens in real life. Affairs wreck lives. One of the most painful experiences I've had in Christian ministry was just after two Christians admitted to their respected spouses that they'd been having an affair for five years. I will never forget going into one of the family homes after this news had just been told, just that day, and I saw complete devastation the wife and daughter with a mixture of disbelief and disgust. They could not believe their husband and father had done this 
and yet they did believe it and they were disgusted with him. The husband with his head in his hands, not being able to look at his wife or his daughter and barely being able to look at me and talk to me. And I can remember, I can still remember the sound of sobbing from all of them. Do not believe the Hollywood lie that it's exciting. It isn't. Well, it might appear to be, but it causes untold pain and anguish. That's why Jesus speaks this way. Because he loves us. He doesn't want this pain upon us. And he says, if you play with sex, you're playing with fire, the fires of hell. And again, you'll say to me, if you've got the gospel in your mind clear, you'll say, that can't be right. Christians are not in danger of hell. Jesus has rescued me from that fate. Yes, he has, but remember the context. This lifestyle doesn't make me a Christian. Jesus saves me. That's what makes me a Christian. But my response to him is a great barometer of where my heart is. I cannot keep saying I prayed a prayer of commitment 20 years ago and so I'm a Christian. I have to say, am I living as if I'm a Christian now? That's the real mark, isn't it? See, the real disciple of Jesus will always want to aim high. We won't always get it right. No, we're going to fail on this. But we'll want to live a pure life. And you see, these are not arbitrary rules made up by a vindictive God who's out to ruin life. These are the loving commandments of a gracious Father who doesn't want to wreck our lives and eternity. He loves you. That's why he speaks like this. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery in your heart. Heart adultery has fatal consequences, so forth take drastic actions to deal with adultery. Again, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Verse 30. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, of course, this isn't to be taken literally. It can't be. Because if I remove my right eye, I've still got my left and I can look just as lustfully with my left as I can with my right. Now this is highly visual picture that Jesus uses to say, don't compromise, don't flirt with sin. When you're tempted, cut it out, cut it off, because it's deadly. When you get home, you might like to do a Google search on the name Aaron Ralston and you will come across what for me is one of the most extraordinary news stories of the past decade. Remember the name? Aaron Ralston. He was the rock climber climbing in Utah whose arm became trapped under a huge boulder. Remember this? After five days of uh, being unable to free himself, no sign of rescue, when time was running out, he'd had sips of water, he he decided to amputate his own arm. By by now, the the Google search will tell you that it was dead anyway, and uh, he amputated his arm which with something that was effectively not much more than a penknife, He cut off his arm because his arm trapped him and it would have killed him. That's what Jesus is saying. Cut out things that will kill you spiritually. Radical surgery is required. Eye adultery leads to heart adultery which leads to hell. So cut it out. What will it mean in practical terms? In practical terms, gouging out my eye means using the off switch on the television. It's remarkable how hard that is to do, isn't it? These days you don't even have to get up from the television, just press the button. It's very easy. That would be a good thing to learn to do in this. 
It means being more selective of the books I read or the films I watch at the cinema. Maybe even being prepared to walk out of the cinema even though I've just paid £7.50 or whatever it is. It is expensive these days, isn't it? Are you prepared to get up when you're looking at things that are unhelpful for you and say, well, blow the £7.50? For some, gouging out my right eye will mean throwing some magazines out of the house. Christian men, can I say magazines like Zoo and Nuts are not appropriate for you to be reading? They are sold as men's magazines. They contain soft porn. I don't even like the phrase soft porn. Porn is porn. See, I want to say this. No man can look at the pictures in those magazines without lusting. So don't pretend that it's not a pornographic magazine. It is. Cut them out of your life. Throw them away if you've got them. Don't buy any more. I think it's much harder for men these days. Uh, years ago, if you went into a, into a uh, newsagent, you'd, you'd have to go to the top shelf and it would be an obviously pornographic magazine. And if you bought it, um, the woman behind the counter would look at you as a dirty old man because that's what you are. Now you can buy Zoo and Nuts and they just think, well, that's a man's magazine and that's what people do. So it's much harder. You're not even seen as a dirty old man, but you are, so let's face up to it. For many Christian men, gouging out my eye means putting software on my computer to block unhelpful websites. I've uh, put uh, one of the details down on the bottom here, www.covenanteyes.com. Two men have asked me to be an accountability partner for them. Two men who've got problems with uh, pornography on the internet um, have set themselves up with this uh, software and I get uh, an accountability report once a month that tells me if they've been visiting any dodgy sites. And if they have, we've agreed that I will give them a rocket. So I do. Except they're doing very well, so I don't have to. Let's take drastic action. When Jesus says, gouge out your right eye, he says, be careful what you put before your eyes. And I'm going to sit my neck out here and realise that for some this is going to be too much, but I'm going to have a go. Can I also suggest that we are careful what we put before someone else's eyes as well? Ladies, can I ask you to think about how you dress? Perhaps showing a little less flesh than you do at the moment. Now I realise as I say this that some of you will be thinking that I'm heading towards being Taliban. (laughs) I'm not expecting women to cover up because men can't control themselves. That's not the point. I'm not suggesting you wear burqas. I'm saying out of Christian concern for your brothers in Christ, out of Christian concern for your brothers in Christ, will you dress in a way that is helpful? That's what I'm saying. And men, we should do the same as well. I don't know how women respond to this. I haven't got the sort of body that women uh, need or, 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 or want. It doesn't seem to be too much of a problem for me. I just have to cover it up because it's not very nice to look at. But for those of you who have rippling muscles, just keep them to yourself, will you? And I'm not saying that because I'm, I wish I had your body. You see what I'm saying. Look, there's a huge difference, ladies, between dressing attractively and dressing seductively, isn't there? If it will lead to heart adultery, cut it out. Verse 29, gouge out your eye. And verse 30, cut off your hand. See, Jesus says, be careful not only what you look at, but what you touch as well. I'm sure that's the point of the hand. 
See, as we draw to a close, let's not be naive. Touch is very arousing. Touch some and you'll want some more. Jesus says if it arouses you, then when it shouldn't, then don't touch it. What does that mean in practice? If you're attracted to someone that you shouldn't be, someone in the office, avoid unhelpful physical contact. Don't put the arm around the shoulders. Cut it out. Don't lean over the shoulder to read the report, and especially when it's an opportunity to take a quick look down her blouse at the same time. I'm sorry if I've shocked you women, but I'm afraid that is what the men do. If you're married, if, or if you're attracted to someone who's married, beware. Jesus slaps a do not touch notice on those people. He says, hands off, cut it out. Don't get in a lonely place with them. And let me say this to those who are dating. Beware how seductive touch is. You, you know this, sadly, because too many of you have already gone there. You know how difficult it is to stop once you've started how very difficult it is to backtrack once you've crossed the line. Josh McDowell, the Christian writer, speaks of, of the law of diminishing returns. It's an economic phrase, but he, uh, he uses it for dating, the law of diminishing returns. He makes this point. When you hold hands for the first time, how very exciting it is. And then he says you continue to hold hands, and after a while, it's not quite as exciting and you want the next thing, the law of diminishing returns. And so you want the kiss on the lips. And the first kiss is just amazing. And then you kiss and you kiss and then you want, well, you know how it goes. First time you put your hand inside the clothes, very exciting. And you want more. You'll always want more the next time. The law of diminishing returns. You don't quite get the same thrill as the time before. Now, I would guess some of you, having heard all this, are saying it's all a bit extreme. But isn't that what Jesus is saying? What is more extreme than verses 29 and 30? Cut it out. Cut off your right hand. Gouge out your right eye. And it is the right hand and the right eye because those are the most precious ones in the culture. Sadly, the bar has been lowered in the church in these last years. I expect most Christians are not virgins when they get married. But the Christian should be aiming high. Let me say to those of you over here, it would be fantastic if when you got married you were a virgin. You might have already lost that. Why don't you aim for it? It won't be popular. Aim for it. Let me say to those of you up there, if there are any left, be a virgin when you get married. Or how about starting from today? Be a virgin from today if you can do that. Aim high. Jesus has died for you. He's not out to get you. He's out to help you. He loves you. Let me say to everyone else, it's not just about the young people. Aim high. If you're not married, don't have sex with people until you are. If we are married and all of us don't look lustfully, start acting hard on your mind. Let's not do the turning around and looking again. Let's work hard on it. Do not commit adultery. Don't even commit adultery in your heart, for heart adultery has fatal consequences. Do not let adultery rule in your heart. Cut it out. 
and with the help of the Holy Spirit, shall we collectively deal with sexual immorality here? Well, let's turn to pray. Uh, You'll see on the service order that we've left confession to now, quite deliberately, uh, because we're assuming that, um, if not everybody, almost everybody in this room is likely to need to confess something before the Lord. And before we turn to confess our sin collectively, I'm going to leave a moment of silence for us to confess our sin personally. And this is a chance for us to do business with God. There'll be something that we need to deal with. Let's deal with it with the Lord now. there will be some couples in the congregation some people who are dating it would be very good if right now you made a decision in your mind to talk to your boyfriend, girlfriend to tell the Lord that you're going to talk to them and you're going to redraw the line in a place that is far more in keeping with what it means to be Christian some here who are locked into pornography make a decision now before the Lord that you're going to get this sorted that you don't go to your grave with this problem hanging over you time after time after time There might be one or two here, or maybe more, I hope not, who are locked in an affair. You're married and you're having unhelpful sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. Repent of it and be determined to talk to somebody before the day is out to deal with it. No smugness from the preacher. So let's confess together, seriously, uh, with the words on the service order. And perhaps you'll respond uh, in the type uh, in bold. With God's people of every age, we look to the blessed hope, the final appearing in glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In repentance of our sins... We prepare for the day when everything will be laid bare. 
we turn our backs upon ungodly and worldly desires. God forgives all who repent and who meet him at the cross of Christ, his Son. Purify us for your service, O Lord, that we may be a people who are eager to do good. Keep us in the confidence of eternal life. Strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus returns. Amen.